Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. And we're off. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. A podcast where we usually do, um, these days, opinion scholarship. Um, today I'm going to do a little something different for you. I've been uh, teeing this up for the last few weeks. The book you see uh, there on the screen is C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. So this is a fictional story. It's not my normal um, shtick. Usually we're dealing with um, some nonfiction, some some mystical um, topics, uh, philosophical topics, religious topics, and you know, um, fiction is um, a little bit of a divergence from that, but not really because we're talking about C.S. Lewis today. Uh, those people who don't recognize that name immediately, um, you probably know know C.S. Lewis anyway. He um, famously wrote. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia. So those were extremely popular movies not long ago. Before that, they were extremely popular books. Um, what stands out to your mind when I bring up Narnia? And by the way, there's lots of other things that C.S. Lewis wrote. The Screw Tape Letters are another fantastic one many people know about. Um, those people who do know C.S. Lewis know that he was um, a Christian. He was a religious person. Um, but he was a very intelligent person. He was buddies uh, for a long stretch with J.R.R. Tolkien, and they um, they had a dear uh, relationship. Had both of them um, writing similar similar ways. So with Tolkien, you had the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and so forth. These fantasy stories, which are like modern day myths, that include the images and the meaning from. Um, ancient myths. And so Tolkien famously borrowed from Norse mythology, Greek mythology, Celtic mythology, things like that, to put together the stories uh, that we're all familiar with. C.S. Lewis did the same with Narnia. You guys may remember the lion in Narnia. His name is, I think, Aslan or something like that. Um, and he dies and is resurrected. He's the king, the lion, of course. Uh, so the symbol of Aslan is, is the symbol of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. And you see that playing out in Narnia. So it's kind of that that I want to talk about today. We know C.S. Lewis is, is trying to make a myth. Uh, that's what he did with Narnia. That's what Tolkien did with uh, The Lord of the Rings. And that's what he's done with Out of the Silent Planet. But unlike the fantasy stories that we talked about with Narnia and um, with Tolkien, the, this is a science fiction series, a three-book series. Today we're just talking about the first one, Out of the Silent Planet. Um, this is a science fiction story and an old science fiction story. 
So it's interesting to see a myth being created in this sort of future-looking way, rather than copying the ancient myths the way that Tolkien did. We're looking at uh, a myth that takes place in the future, really. Um, but C.S. Lewis is going to do all the same things here. He's going to use um, symbols and imagery. Um, there's going to be religious um, threads that go kind of under the surface of the story. And that's what I want to do. I want to talk about that today. So you can see how that overlaps with kind of what we usually do. It's just unusual that we're doing it with fiction this time. Okay. Not 100% sure where to begin. I, I'm going to call this episode C.S. Lewis in Space. In Space, Out of the Silent Planet. So this book was published in 1938. I tell you that because I want to point out a couple things I noticed. Now, I want to at least mention that C.S. Lewis in the acknowledgement in the book and at a couple different places in the book, he acknowledges the influence of H.G. Wells. You guys know H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds. You know, that was published in the very late 1800s. This book was published in 1938. So you know a lot of these classic sci-fi writers have already come beforehand. C.S. Lewis is acknowledging that he's borrowing from them. But what he doesn't do, he doesn't acknowledge the influence of Edgar Rice Burroughs. And if you don't know the name Edgar Rice Burroughs, you probably know his famous book Tarzan, right? But he also wrote a book, uh, a series of books that were called the Barsoom Stories. If that rings a bell to anybody, it's because there was a famous Disney movie, um, I don't know, 10 years or so back, maybe a little more. Um, it was called John Carter of Mars. You guys remember that? John Carter of Mars. That story was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, same fellow that gave us Tarzan. That book was published in 1911. And when I was reading the book, and by the way, Kyle introduced me to this book. If it wasn't for him, I never would have read it, and it, I'm very glad I did. Um, this first book was really interesting. The second book in, this, in, the, in the series, which is the middle book, was even better, so I really can't wait to get to it. Um, so... I noticed a couple of similarities between the John Carter stories. Now, I never read the books, but I saw the movie. I loved the movie, really. And I noticed a couple things that stood out to me. I'm like, oh, man. like He took that directly from Edgar Rice Burroughs. I didn't know at the time that, that the Barsoom stories came out in the early 1900s, 1911. And this book came out in 1938. So clearly, if C.S. Lewis knew uh, the Barsoom stories, I think he borrowed from them. And he didn't acknowledge it. So I'm going to point it out when I get to those places. And I, I'm going to ask you, if you've seen the movie John Carter of Mars, what you think. Um, so just on the surface, the names of the characters, um, I'm going to introduce to you because I have some things to say about it. The hero, his name is, they just, he's just called Ransom in the stories. But his name is Elwyn Ransom. He's a Cambridge Professor, so he's a, I don't know, probably dressed something like me. Um, he's a, uh, you know, um, a buttoned-up professor type, uh, intellectual um, type of fellow. Uh, he's a uh, philologist, so he studies languages. Kyle mentioned to me, and I didn't know this, that um, J.R. Tolkien was a philologist, which makes some sense, and that this character Ransom, the hero of this story, was based maybe loosely, but based on Tolkien himself. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so Ransom, Elwyn Ransom, he encounters two characters early in the book who quickly turn out to be the villains, um, somebody named Divine, 
and somebody named Professor Weston. So I just want to tell you what I think about these names before we jump in, because we're going to talk about the symbolism while we're doing this. I think Elwin Ransom, the, the, the word ransom, knowing C.S. Lewis to be a Christian and to, and to have these underlying uh, threads in his stories, makes me think of a sort of a Christian phrase um, that, that the sacrifice of Jesus was the ransom for our souls. So you often hear that phrase, Jesus died for our souls. His life was the ransom paid for our, for our souls. So ransom, the hero, seems to have some sort of association with Jesus Christ. I think that's particularly interesting when we go back to the um, Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff, the, the John Carter of Mars parallel, because, because John Carter, um, that name has the initials JC, Jesus Christ, John Carter. Now, also, John Carter being the hero of that story makes some sense. And you may think, you know, Chris, you're probably stretching a little bit. Um, but uh, if Edgar Rice Burroughs intended that, that JC analogy, he wouldn't be the first person to have done it. So many of you know the story of Pinocchio, and you know Pinocchio has a, the voice of conscience that he carries in his pocket, a little cricket named what? Jiminy Cricket. JC, Jesus Christ, John Carter. You see what I mean? So it seems to me that Ransom um, is something like John Carter, um, a archetypal hero, a savior-type person. Um, and, and his name, Ransom, seems, seems to me sig- significant. Ransom for our souls. What about his first name? Elwin. It's kind of a weird name. I don't know if you've ever met an Elwin before. I'm sure they exist. But El is the root uh, in Hebrew for, for the word God. El means God in, in Hebrew. That's why all the angels' names end in El, Michael, Gabriel, Uriel, so on and so forth. Um, El means God. So you have Elwin, ransom, right? God, who sacrificed himself as a ransom for our soul. All that, to me, seems pretty legit, symbolically. And then there's uh, Weston, who turns out to be the real villain of the two, Divine and Weston. Um, Weston to me, just makes me think of the West or Western civilization. And in the character Weston, you'll see, he kind of has that air about him. He's um, uh, kind of an elitist type of a character. Um, he's a super intelligent guy. He's all about progress and doesn't really care about the price of progress. All these things that kind of remind you of the West, of Western expansion in America, um, you know, that, that sort of thing, divine right to rule and, uh, and all that. Um, now, I'm going to jump into the story. I, I want to tell you that while I was reading this and while I was preparing this episode, I thought a lot about the episodes that we did on some of Young's pupils, particularly um, Mary Louise von Franz. If you remember, von Franz was giving us all these fairy tales, basically. And then she was telling us the story, and then she was telling us the meaning, the psychological meaning behind the symbols in the story. And one of the things that's common is this passage like Alice into the rabbit hole. There's a passage that happens in these myths where the character goes from the world of the living to this divine, spiritual, other world. And and all the fantastic things happen in this other world. And von Franz pointed out that this transition into that other world is sort of um, moving from the our conscious reality and conscious experience 
into this mysterious unconscious part of ourselves, this unconscious realm, spirit realm. And this is where all these fantastic stories happen. Um, This is the same place, the same realm that myths happen. And so we're going to see something like that um, here in the beginning. So without further ado, I'm going to tell you as much as I can about the story so that you can kind of make sense of what I want to point out to you. Um, So this is something like a summary of the book, but really focusing on these religious themes that C.S. Lewis put in. So the story begins with Ransom, the hero. He encounters a woman who pleads for him to go fetch her husband. So he's been gone way too long. He's a servant uh, at a nearby household, and he's supposed to be home, and he's not home. And he's kind of a simple guy, and she's worried about him. Ransom pops up. She's like, hey, do me a favor. Run up to this house, please. Get my husband to come home. I'm very worried about him. And Ransom, being a good Christian, uh, decides he, he will do that. And when he gets to the house, this is when he bumps into Divine and Weston for the first time. And they're struggling with this guy in there, and he over, overhears it. And he's like, what the hell's going on? And um, they basically are startled, just as startled as Ransom is. Turns out that Divine knows Ransom from their days in college, just vaguely. And so what they end up doing is letting this poor man go, this simple servant fellow go, and they decide um, to invite Ransom into the house. And Divine offers him something to drink, you know, English hospitality and all that. Um, Next thing you know, Ransom is unconscious. So it turns out whatever he gave him to drink, it was laced with something because he immediately loses consciousness. Now, the experience of losing consciousness is an archetypal theme. It's seen in myths and stories which transition the subject into the unconscious. Sorry, this is the Alice in the rabbit hole scenario. But in this case, it's drinking the drink. Wakes up in another world, just like Alice does. So this is the transition, right? So this is usually a magical or a numinous realm. You know, it's the fairy world, the underworld, the land of the gods, the upside down, you know, whatever it might be. Oz, you know, whatever. Whatever that, that, that unconscious realm is. I think it's interesting here because there's a dream scene that follows immediately this scene. And this is Ransom's dream. And so in the dream, it's Ransom, Divine, and Weston. And they're standing in this garden, this illuminated, bright, beautiful garden. And they're peering over the wall of the garden. And beyond the wall, it's pitch black and terrifying. So you have this juxtaposition between the the light shining in the garden, everything green and brightly lit. And then over the wall of the garden, you have the dark, terrifying, you know, no man's land. And so the garden represents the conscious. And the darkness over the wall represents the unconscious. And just before the dream ends, just before Ransom wakes up, he's actually sitting on the wall, straddling it with one leg over into the darkness, one leg hanging over into the light. And so the the symbol is Ransom right there on the edge between the unconscious and the conscious, between his waking life and this fantasy life that that we're about to find ourselves in. And Ransom does something really interesting. He's, he, at this point, Divine and Western are gone. He's straddling the wall, looking into the darkness. And he hollers into the darkness, Who are you? And it makes the hair stand up on my arms because I had a very similar situation. I've told you guys about my own mystical experience before, and I had one in particular where um, I was in 
the, the dark, empty space of my mind in this meditative place, and I felt like I wasn't alone there in this experience. And I did the same thing. I said, what are you? Over and over again. I don't know whether I said it in my head or out loud or maybe both, but I had the same impulse that Ransom has here. He's yelling into the darkness, who are you? And I think what that symbolizes is really the personality of the hero in, in Jungian terms. So Carl Jung would say that that our goal as, as living you know, human beings is to make the unconscious conscious, to go into that dark place, find whatever it is that's, that can be found there and bring it back with us, bring it back into the land of living, something that we can benefit from. So we go into the unknown. We go into the chaos. We we struggle with the dragon, whatever you know that rep- it's representative of the chaos, and we bring back the treasure. That's the hero story. And see, this is how ransom is that that hero archetype. He's, he's seeking to make the unconscious conscious when he yells into the darkness, "Who are you?" All right, so. So when Ransom wakes up, he finds himself disoriented. He's in very unfamiliar surroundings. And I'm just going to read to you um, a quote from the book, and it goes like this. His rising was disastrous. It raised graver apprehensions in his mind about the effects of being drugged. Although he had been conscious of no unusual muscular effort, he found himself leaping from the bed with an energy which brought his head into sharp contact with the skylight and flung him down again in a heap on the floor. So I don't share this with you for any particular reason other than this reminds me of the story John Carter of Mars. So what happens, if you remember that story, when John Carter sort of magically finds himself transported from Earth to Mars, he wakes up, and the first thing he does is try to move. And when he does, he realizes that moving is difficult, it doesn't, it's not like he expected, and he's finding himself with very little effort jumping hundreds of feet into the air. He's like, I'm a goddamn superhero. He doesn't realize that gravity is lower on this new planet he's found himself on. He has no idea he's on another planet. He just wakes up on it, and, and this happens to him. Same thing happens to Ransom here, right? He wakes up um, when he was, before he, he fell, fell into his... Uh, unconscious state, he was on earth, he wakes up, now all of a sudden he can't even get up without finding himself slamming into the ceiling and falling back down onto the floor. It turns out that's not because he's on Mars, in this case it's because he's in space, he's uh, on a spaceship here. But a very similar situation between the John Carter story and this story, and I wanted to, I wanted to at least share that with you. Do you think that uh, there's a connection there? I, I think there is. All right, so next, um, in the next scene, Weston appears, and he explains to Ransom that they're on a spaceship, and they're heading for a place called Malacandra, and it's 28 days' journey. So Ransom, being a very smart person, he asks what Malacandra is, but Weston implies that it's a planet he's already familiar with, and the word Malacandra comes from its own inhabitants. So he doesn't tell him what the planet is, where they're going, but Ransom knows it's only 28 days' journey away. can't be too far, right? And now he also knows there are creatures who live there who can speak. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a word in their language for this planet, Malacandra, whatever it is. 
again, I want to make a parallel to John Carter of Mars. If you have seen that movie or read the book, you know that John Carter, well, he doesn't know what planet he's arrived on when he gets there. But the creatures who he finds there tells him the planet is called Barsoom. So, Malacandra, Barsoom. Now, Barsoom is the, first, is the Martian name that John Carter learns before coming to understand that Barsoom is Mars. And spoiler alert, we'll find in the story as we go along, Malacandra is also Mars, okay? So I want to make a note, there's some more symbolism that, that occurs while he's on the spaceship, while Ransom is on the ship. Symbolism of the unconscious meeting the conscious. So Divine, one of these villains, he describes um, their interplanetary trip, I mean, the, where they're going here. He describes it as the meeting of two worlds, and Ransom remarks about seeing out of one side of the ship full bright day and out of the other side of the window pitch black night. So he's facing the sun here and not there. You've probably seen that if you've been on an airplane at night, you know, when the sun's going down, very similar phenomena. But you can see the contrast, right? The meeting of two worlds, and he sees the darkness and the light, just like he did in his dream. The meeting of the conscious world and the unconscious world. Not, not the meeting of creatures from two different planets, which is really what's happening here, uh, what will be happening here, but symbolic of the meeting of the conscious and the unconscious. So fast forward, they arrive on Malacandra. Um, Ransom is disoriented by it. The, the, he, he describes how the sky is sort of lighter than he expected. There's a kind of a pink hue to the, to the air all around him. There's vegetation growing, but it's very weird and unfamiliar and alien. And um, after a little while, he catches uh, a glimpse of something in the distance. It turns out they're, they're creatures that are moving towards uh, Weston and, and Divine and Ransom. And so I'll just read, you, read to you from the book. It goes like this. He looked up. Six white things were standing there, spindly and, fl and filmsy things, uh, twice or three times the height of a man. What could they be made of? And how could they stand so crazily thin and elongated in the leg, so top-heavily pouted in the chest, such stalky, flexible-looking distortions of earthly bipeds? Their faces thin and unnaturally long, with long, drooping noses and drooping mouths of half-spectral, half-idiotic solemnity. So we, here we just get the description of these first alien beings that arrive and, and that Ransom sees. And so, of course, he assumes that these must be the inhabitants that Weston spoke of, the ones that told him the planet was called Malacandra, and, of course, that, that happens to be the case. And the excitement of this encounter, Ransom is able to kind of free himself, and he basically makes a run for it. So now he is on the run in an alien planet without, without knowing anything about it. But he knows he's got to get out of there because Ransom and Weston have taken him there against his will and he doesn't have any idea what the hell they want from him. So as he's running away, he begins to wonder what planet he could possibly be on. And, and he says this, uh, the book says, He had sufficient science to guess that he must be on a world lighter than the earth where nature was set free to follow her skyward impulse. Perhaps he was on Mars. 
So this is just Ransom's ration, you know, rational mind. He sees these alien creatures. They're very tall and stretched out. The plants seem to be that way. He knows he can, you know, the, the gravity isn't the same as what he was used to. So he imagines that he must be on Mars, a, a planet nearby with lower gravity that would allow these creatures and, 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 uh, and um, trees and so forth to grow like that, stretched and long, the way you might expect evolution, the, the path evolution might take if gravity were, were lower than what we have on Earth. So he just keeps running, and eventually, and I'll just kind of fast forward for brevity, eventually he encounters another creature. And, and he, at first he doesn't want to you know, come up and speak to it or whatever. He kind of hides from it and watches it. Um, it was uh, seven feet high with a snaky body, covered face and all with thick black hair and whiskers like a cat. So this is how this creature is described. So Ransom studies the creature. He's hidden you know, behind some bushes, and he's just watching it, trying to see what it is, trying to learn from it, see if it's dangerous, whatever. And then eventually this creature starts to speak, like talking to itself. And... Ransom, of course, is a philologist. He studies language. He's an expert. And he realizes quickly that these aren't animal calls, that this is a real sophisticated language that's being spoken. And Ransom, of course, is filled with scientific curiosity. He really can't, at this point, hold himself back. So he approaches the creature. And they were immediately fascinated by one another. And so attempts between the two to communicate, they start making progress. And I'll just read to you how this goes. The creature struck itself on the chest and made a noise. He saw that it was trying to teach him its name, presumably the name of the species. Cross, it said, and flapped itself. Cross, repeated Ransom, then man, and struck his own chest. It picked up a handful of earth. Hundra, it said. Ransom repeated the word. Then an idea occurred to him. Malakandra, he said. The cross waved his arm in an effort to indicate the whole landscape. Ransom was getting on well. Chandra was Earth. Malakandra, the planet as a whole. And then Ransom asks the word for, for the mountain that he sees. And the aliens um, named this Harandra. So the low-watered country appeared to be Handramit. Ransom grasped the implication Chandra, Earth, Harandra, High Earth, Mountain, Handramit, Low Valley. Um, the cross was also at some pains to impress upon him the contrasted pair of words, Hrasa Handramit and Saroni Handrana. Ransom understood him to mean the Hrasa lived down in the Handramit and the Sorns up on the Harandra. All right, so this, I, I know it's a little confusing without reading and following along, but I show you this only to show you that this is kind of how, this is the mo the, um, the montage, really, of how uh, Ransom learns to speak to the aliens. Like, you know he's a, he's a language expert already, so it, this is going to come easier to him. And he goes through the process of, like, showing the alien things, learning the words for it, until they understand one another a little bit better. Um, I also want to point out in the beginning, there's a strange scene that probably strikes you as familiar, where the alien comes up and says, me, Hras, and Ransom says, me, man, you know, and it reminds you of Tarzan, I have to say, Edgar Rice Burroughs again, it reminds me of Tarzan. So this is how he learns to speak the alien language, 
and then we'll move on. So Ransom is led by the Ross, the Ross that he's met, to his community. Basically, he just takes them home with, with him. Um, the Ross is curious to know who this guy is and where he came from, and so I'll read you that part of the story. He was quite unable to point Earth out to them in the night sky. He turned the conversation by asking them the name of the bright southern planet and was told that it was Tholkandra, the silent world. Why do you call it Thalk, he asked. Why silent? No one knew. The Saroni know. That's what they told him. The Saroni know. So after some more questions, it continues like this. The Hrasa agreed that he ought to go to Oyarsa. Ransom asked who Oyarsa was. Slowly, he hammered out the information that Oyarsa lived at Meldalorn, knew everything and ruled everyone, had always been there, and was not a Haras or one of the Saroni. All right, so the Saroni, the, or the Sorns as they call them, that's the alien creature he met first, the long, spindly white creatures. The Haras are these hairy, snake-like creatures that he's with now. And apparently there's some third being or, or creature, Oyarsa, and he lives in a place called Meldalorn. So presumably this is the capital or some place where he can go and meet the king or whoever this Oyarsa guy is. And so I'll continue. Then Ransom asked if Oyarsa had made the world. Did people in Thalkandra not know that Meleldil the Young had made and still ruled the world? Even a child knew that. Where did the Meleldil live? Ransom asked. He is not that sort, said Khnora, that he has to live anywhere. It became plain that Meleldil was a spirit without body, parts, or passions. He is not Khnau, said Harasa. What is Khnau? asked Ransom. You are now? I am now. The Saroni are now. Which of the Khnau rule? he asked. Oyarsa rules, was the reply. Is he Khnau? This puzzled them a little. Perhaps Oyarsa was now, but a very different now. He had no death and no young. All right, so it's not clear yet what Khnau means, but it seems to mean something like a living being or a conscious being, because the, the Sorns and the Hrasa are both considered to be whatever this Khnau is, but so is Ransom, and they recognize that about him. They're like, yeah, you're now, I'm now, the Saroni are now. And he asks, is the Oyarsa? And they're, they're really not sure how to answer that question. So whoever this Oyarsa is, maybe he's a living, sentient creature like, like man and the Saroni and the Harasa, but it's not clear. There's also this character, Maleldil, that gets, that gets brought up, and this is, basically, this is basically God, right? He says, did Oyarsa create the world? And he says, no, that's Maleldil. Everybody knows that. Maleldil created the world, and he rules the world. So clearly this is like a God type of a person. And the, the Rasa tells Ransom that when he dies, when Ransom dies, he will go to Maleldil. So you see, again, this is a God type of an image that, that Maleldil is, is supposed to be. And then Ransom asks a question. And I'll read that for you. He says, It comes into my head that when I first saw you, and before you saw me, you were already speaking but who were you speaking to? To an Eldil. What is that? I saw no one. 
Are there no Eldile in your world, human? That must be strange. But what are they? They come from Oyarsa. They are, I suppose, a kind of now. But Eldile are hard to see. They are not like us. Light goes through them. You must be looking in the right place and the right time. And that is not likely to come about unless the Eldil wishes to be seen. Sometimes you can mistake them for a sunbeam or even a moving of the leaves. But when you look again, you see that it was an Eldil and that it is gone. So now we were introduced to some other creature, some invisible creature that seems to inhabit the planet, the Eldil or the Eldile. And then I'll fast forward to a little bit in the story. Um, Ransom goes on a hunting trip with Hrasa. And so their Harasa are basically like a kind of a primitive tribe of people, and they're going out hunting, and he's going with them, right? And the, the scene goes like this. There is an Eldil coming to us over the water. Ransom could see nothing, or nothing that he could distinguish from imagination and the dance of sunlight on the lake. A moment later, Hoi spoke, but not to him. What is it, Skyborn? What happened next was the most uncanny experience Ransom had yet had on Melacondra. He heard the voice. It seemed to come out of the air, and it was almost an octave higher than the crosses. He realized that a very little difference in his ear would have made the Eldil as inaudible to him as it was invisible. The man with you, he ought to be going to Oyarsa. Bent now of his own kind from Thalkandra are following him. He should go to Oyarsa. If they find him anywhere else, there will be evil. So this last bit is the voice of the Eldil, the voice of this invisible spirit being, that where light shines through its body and it's almost completely not there, but not entirely. And he says something strange. He says, the bent Hnau of his own kind from Thalkandra are following him. So bent is a word they use in the story the, the Martians use, and it kind of means evil. It means evil. This is their word for it. So the evil now, the evil men of his own kind, are following him. So the, the spirit is warning the Hras and Ransom that Divine and Weston are, are, are after them. And he needs to go see Aryarsa. If he doesn't, something bad is going to happen. And so Ransom engages with the spirit. He learns from their conversation with the Eldil that Meldalorn is the seat of Oyarsa. And before Weston and Divine catch up to them, as the Eldil warned he, he would, um, Divine and Weston kill one of the Yarsa with a rifle. So they kind of catch up to him. They can see them. They take a shot. They kill one of the, one of the Harasa from a distance. At this point, Ransom is implored to do as the Eldil bid and to leave immediately for Oyarsa. So the, the Harasa are now like, look, man, the, the spirits are telling you to go to Oyarsa or there's something bad's going to happen. Now one of our people are dead. You have to go. So they point him, he, they basically point him in the right direction and off he goes. And so the next scene here, um, Ransom is, is wondering to himself. So he, I'll just read it to you. Was Oyarsa a god? But the Harasa thought, excuse me, but the Harasa, though they said strange things about him, clearly denied that he was a god. There was only one god, according to them, Meleldil. 
So Ransom travels in the direction of Meldalorn. And after an exhausting day of all kinds of dangers and, and perils, he finds refuge in a, in a cave. He comes across a big cave, and in the cave, he comes face-to-face with exactly the, the last thing he wants to come to face-to-face with, and it's one of those sorns from the beginning, one of those spindly aliens from the beginning that he's been running from this whole time. Um, but the Sorn relieves his fears immediately. It becomes clear to Ransom this guy's not a threat. He's not trying to kill him. He talks to him kindly. He offers him food and, and shelter. He can stay in the cave and all that. Um, and Ransom uses the opportunity to learn as much as he can from the Sorn. So I'll read that to you. He says, Do you rule the Khrasa? Oyarsa rules them. And who rules you, Oyarsa? And Oyarsa, is he a Sorn? No, no, small one. I have told you, he rules all now. And everything in Malakandra. So at this point in the story, the meaning of now or now is clearly something like self-conscious, intelligent beings. So it goes on. Oyarsa does not die, said the Sorn, and he does not breed. He is the one of his kind who was put in Malakandra to rule it when Malakandra was made. His body is not like ours, nor yours. It is hard to see, and the light goes through it. Like an Eldil? Yes, he is the greatest of Eldile. What are these Eldile? Do you tell me, small one, that there are no Eldile in your world? Not that I know of, but what are Eldile, and why can I not see them? Have they no bodies? Of course they have bodies. There are a great many bodies you cannot see. Every animal's eyes see some things, but not others. Body is movement, and if at one speed you smell something, if at another you hear a sound, if at another you see a sight, but mark this small one, that the two ends meet. How do you mean? If movement is faster then that which moves is more nearly in two places at once. If movement were faster still, the moving thing would be in all places at once, small one. That is the thing at the top of all bodies, so fast that it is at rest, so truly body that it has ceased being body at all. (sighs) Right? Am I right, you guys? So this is the first sort of really compelling uh, religious speech that Ransom hears, explaining to him, you know, um, about these Eldile, these spirits that inhabit the planet, about Oyarsa, who is the greatest of the Eldile, um, and uh, this, this issue about bodies and why these spirits, the Eldile and Oyarsa, are invisible and why he has trouble hearing them. And the explanation is strange. It's body is movement. And if at one speed it's it's a smell, at another a sound, at another a sight. He says, but the two ends meet. And he explains that by saying, if movement is faster, then, then that which it moves is more nearly in two places at once. And if it moves even faster, it's in all places at once. And so you have an explanation for how spirits can be considered omnipresent, or God can be considered omnipresent. You know, always there, everywhere, all at once. 
And according to the these alien creatures, it's a matter of speed. It's a matter of movement. And what's funny about that is that the speed of light is such a mystery. And the speed of light itself is connected with time and space in weird ways that we don't understand. You know, and, and, and Einstein's relativity is, is really the, the, the greatest exposition of that idea. All right, the swarm continues. The swiftest thing that touches our senses is light. We do not truly see light. We only see slower things lit by it. So that for us, light is on the edge. The last thing we know before things become too swift for us. Isn't that interesting? So it's like the idea that there could be an entirely other layers of reality that interpenetrate with ours or exist you know, in parallel with ours or in ours. And we don't have access to because it's too fast, too swift. And that's how things become ethereal. That's how things become non-physical. Um, that's how spiritual reality exists. It, it exists at a higher frequency. It exists, you know, moving faster than the reality that we're familiar with. And so you have kind of a physical explanation of a phenomenon that we would just call spiritual. And, and this idea of light being involved, I think, is really interesting. So many mystical and religious connotations to light. You know, the light of God, um, the light of consciousness. Um, you know, the, the first thing that was created biblically, the light from the darkness, and so forth. All right, so he says, But the body of an, of an Eldil is a movement swift as light. You may say its body is made of light, but not of that which is light for the Eldil. His light is a swifter movement, which for us is nothing at all. And what we call light is for him a thing like water, a visible thing, a thing he can touch and bathe in. And what we call firm things, flesh and earth, seem to him thinner and harder to see, more like clouds and nearly nothing. To us, the Eldil is, El, is a thin, half-real body that can go through walls and rocks. To himself, he goes through them because he is solid and they are like cloud. Okay, at this point, the meaning of Eldil as something like spirit becomes fully apparent. And, he, and it goes on. These things are not strange, small one, though they are beyond our senses. All right, so this idea of... Like we can imagine like a ghost story or a spirit from a movie um, moving through a wall, passing through solid objects and and you know that again that that's an unexplainable phenomenon to to a to a scientific minded you know modern earthling it's a, it's a it's it's not a real phenomenon it's something that only a, appears in myths and stories and it's a product of our imagination and so forth but if ghosts or spirits exist, how it might be possible for them to pass through objects that to us seem solid is given a kind of physical explanation. It's like the aliens are wise enough that they can give a, uh, a borderline scientific explanation of something that, that you and I would just think of as spiritual and um, maybe maybe as, as make-believe, you know? So the idea that the spirits move so fast that for them, objects that are solid like us, like walls and buildings, are, are, are you know, ethereal and cloud-like they can pass through them because 
at the speed at which they exist, that's what solid things at our speed seem like. It's the same reason why they, spirits, look like, you know, um, nothing to us, either invisible or just a, uh, you know, a strange uh, phenomena with the light or something. Why their voices are disembodied and hard to hear. It's because they exist at another frequency that to us isn't like the physical here and now. But if we could speed ourselves up, if we could increase the intensity at which we exist, then we would become like an Eldil. And their spirit world that they exist in would become material and solid like ours appears to us. And so there's this weird kind of equality uh, and even sort of a transition. And, and all that's needed is to dial up the frequency and you can move from a physical realm to a spiritual realm. This is kind of what's being described. It's fascinating, really. And the Sorn tells him that these things are not strange, though they are beyond our senses. It's like they're, they're rational, they're reasonable, they make sense if, if only you know, you know the prerequisite information. So this being beyond the senses, I think is an interesting phrase. Because it, it means something like to be beyond perception. Right? Beyond the senses is to be beyond our perception which is also to say beyond our consciousness. Like, I can't be aware of the Spirit because I can't see it. It's beyond my senses. It's beyond my consciousness. And so the Eldil, or the Spirits, is associated with the unconscious realm of Spirit, this other world, the, the world of myths, the fairy world, the Spirit world, the underworld. And it's described here, I think uniquely, as a sort of parallel reality overlapping and inter interpenetrating with ours, distinguished from ours merely by something like frequency. Like motion is what they're calling it. The frequency at which they exist. And then back to the book, it says, but it is strange that the Eldile never visit Thalkandra. Of that I am not certain, said Ransom. It dawned on him that the recurrent human tradition of bright, elusive people, sometimes appearing on earth, albs, devas, and the like, might after all have another explanation than the anthropologist had yet given. So, remember, before, Ransom didn't know what the Eldils were and believed that there weren't any on earth. This is a new phenomenon. But the more he learns, the more he starts to think there's something like spirit, spirit beings. Then he says... It dawned on him that the recurrent human tradition of bright, elusive people sometimes appearing on earth. And he calls them albs, which is a German word that means elves, and devas, which is an Iranian word that means gods or angels or, or magical supernatural beings. So the stories that we tell on earth of elves and fairies and, and pixies and angels and you know these sorts of things, are, are these just our Eldil? That's, that's the question being asked. All right, then Ransom says, Why does Oyarsa send for me? We have no Oyarsa in my world. And the Soren says, That is another proof that you come from Thalkandra, the silent planet. What has that to do with it? The Soren seemed surprised. It is not very likely if you had an Oyarsa that he would never speak to ours. Speak to yours? But how could he? It's 
millions of miles away. Oyarsa would not think of it like that. Oyarsa would not say that he lives on Malakandra and that another Oyarsa lives on another earth. For him, Malakandra is only a place in the heavens. It is in the heavens that he and others live. Of course, they talk together. So, what are we learning here? The Oyarsa, this, this greatest of all spirits, is a kind of dispersed being without ordinary boundaries and, and maybe connected to all the other Oyarsas in heaven. It's like every, the Oyarsa seems to be assigned to a planet when the planet is created. And they're all talking together, easily communicating together in space, as if there's no distance between them. It's, it's not a difficult thing for them to speak to each other, to communicate to each other. So they're like some kind of a dispersed being. I imagine like a, a network of Oyarsa, like a network of spirit, as heaven itself, or, or you might think of as space itself. And that idea reminds me of Indra's net from Hinduism. It also reminds me of something that the, um, that the philosopher Peter Shirstead Hughes said about space itself being, potentially being, something like the, the source of, of sentience in the world. All right, so moving on. The next day, the Sorn agrees to take ransom to, to Meldalorn. So he's just going to take him. You know, got to go see Oyarsa. I might as well take you. I know the way. Um, and uh, he begins to question Ransom about about the Earth. I mean, the Sorn knows nothing about the Earth. He's just as curious to learn about Earth as Ransom is to learn about Mars. Um, and I'll just read to you. It goes like this. They were astonished at what he had to tell them of human history, of war, slavery, prostitution. It is because they have no Oyarsa. It is because... Every one of them wants to be a little Oyarsa himself. They cannot help it, said the old Sorn. There must be rule. Yet how can creatures rule themselves? Beasts must be ruled by Chnau, and Chnau by Eldile, and Eldile by Meleldil. So at this point it becomes clear that Meleldil is in fact some kind of god or the master or source of all the spirits. He says... These creatures have no Eldile. They are like one trying to lift himself by his own hair, like a female trying to beget young on herself. So this is interesting. Okay, so Ransom is describing to him what human beings are like, and the Sorns are completely shocked and appalled. And they say, well, all that terrible stuff is happening on Earth, the war and slavery and prostitution and all that. All that's happening because you have no Oyarsa. If you did, this wouldn't happen. And he said, It is because every one of them, every human, wants to be a little Oyarsa himself. Wants to be a little God himself. Wants to be the ultimate authority. Every human being wants to be the ultimate authority themselves. And there's something like a Luciferian pride, like a sort of an arrogance um, there that, that you can see from our own biblical tradition. You know, Lucifer wanted to be, the, he was the greatest of all angels, just like Oyarsa is the greatest of all spirits. And Lucifer wants to be, he wants to challenge God for supremacy. You know, he wants to be God himself. And that is what the Sorns say of the human beings. 
they want to be a little Oyarsa themselves. And then he says, but they can't help it. It's like, you know, yes, they, have, they, they have these inflated egos. They think, they think themselves to be gods. And they're all cr- crazy and messed up for it. But you can't blame them, the Sorn says. Like, they can't help it. There has to be rule. And how can creatures rule themselves? Without the Oyarsa, without the Eldile, that are supposed to rule over the Chnau, the human beings then they have to rule themselves with no, with no guidance and no authority to do it. And he says, they are like one trying to lift themselves by their own hair. It's like, no wonder they're fucked up. They don't have the structure that they need. They don't have the guiding principles and the harmony uh, you know, and, and spirit and nature that, that they have on Mars. So, yeah, of course things are going to get fucked up. Of course the the Chnau there, the human beings, think they're, they're gods themselves. No wonder things are so terrible on Earth. And this whole conversation brings us eventually to Meldalorn. This is the go, the place that Ransom needs to go to see the Oyarsa. You know, it's we're finally going to visit uh, Oz and talk to the, uh, the, the, the wizard. That's where we are right now. And when Ransom gets there, he finds this beautiful, virginal, flower-filled paradise. And there's a mound island that rises up from the center of this vast lake. And that's symbolic as hell. So there's a parallel. This image of this earth coming up out of the, out of the water. This is the primordial story. This is the story that, that many different peoples tell about the beginning of time. When earth was formed, it came out of the water. So there are Native American stories, as, as an example. They're called earth diver myths. There's lots of them. And the idea is that these animals dive down into the primordial ocean when there's nothing but water in the beginning. And they, and they try to swim down to the bottom so they can find some earth and bring it back up to the top of the water so there can be earth, you know, not just water. And, they, and the animals dive and they, and they can't go deep enough. They can't reach the bottom. And eventually the hero shows up, the animal that, that sacrifices everything and almost dies. And he gets to the bottom and he brings it up and pulls the earth out of his mouth and starts building the earth fr- bit by bit. Okay, and this is how the Earth emerges, and it emerges as this one island up out of the out of the primordial water. In ancient Japan, their creation myth is very similar, and their myth, the uh, one of the creator gods, throws the spear down into the ocean, like you're going to spear a, a whale or something, and pulls the spear back up. And when he pulls the spear back up, it's not a it's not a whale he's, that he's killed. It's the earth itself. And he, I think it's a she, actually. She pulls the earth, the islands of Japan, up out of the depths until they break the surface of the water. And that's how earth is formed. Um, you also have the same story in, in ancient Egypt, classical ancient Egypt, where when the earth is formed, it is this primordial island in the midst of the sea. So you have this is the first image that Ransom sees when he gets to Meldalorn. He is told the island is filled with Eldile. And he takes a ferry, a ferry boat with a ferryman to the island. So he crosses over the lake to get to the island. 
That should also sound familiar to you. It's something like the River Styx, right? In ancient Greece, when you died and you went to the underworld, you had to take a ferry boat across the River Styx to get to the underworld, to get to your destination. There's also a, a parallel in the, in the ancient Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh. If you remember the, the hero Atrahasis, he's going to look for Utnapishtim, and, and that's Noah. Utnapishtim is the Noah character, and the Noah character is this immortal man that lives in the, you know this this magical realm, and he has to he has to go there, and it requires that he takes this ferry across this this water to to find that land. So all of this you can see happening in Meldalorn when Ransom arrives. And when he finally gets there, he's basically waiting to be called by the Oyarsa. Um, he finds all these monuments, these these megaliths, and they're all carved, all these like you know stone carvings, you know that tell a story. And they include depictions of various chanau, and beasts, you know the different creatures that live on Malakandra, including some that are extinct. And he points that out. There's some creatures there that that don't live on Mars anymore, but they were depicted. And so I think there's a parallel here that we're supposed to make between these Neolithic painted caves from France and Spain, the, the cave paintings, these, these, these Stone Age cave paintings that we found on Earth um, that show us um, evidence of the very earliest religious ideas, these therianthrope creatures, half-animal, half-human creatures that ancient people painted and carved into the mount, into the caves along with all kinds of other animals and hunting scenes. And many of the animals there that were depicted were extinct, cave bears and different things like that. So we know how old they are. And I think that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to get uh, across, that these paintings, these carvings rather that that Ransom is encountering are of deep antiquity, and we're supposed to make that connection. So let me read to you this, this bit from the book. The pictures were very puzzling. Side by side with representations of Sorns and Hrasa, there occurred again and again an upright, wavy figure with only the suggestion of a face and with wings. The winged, wavy figure, which he took to be Oyarsa, pictured as a winged flame. All right, so you have all these images of the creatures that live on Earth, but you also are on, on Mars, but you also see this kind of abstract image uh, of a winged flame. And that he, he understands to be an image of Oyarsa. Why that's interesting to me is because if you go into the history of human religions, <laughs> of our religious history, you can see this winged image in lots of places. Two of them occur to me right away. One of them is the uh, image of Ahura Mazda, the ancient Zoroastrian image of God. And it's of a man, or at least the torso of a man, inside of a circle that's supposed to represent the sun, and there's wings on both sides of it. It's kind of like a man sitting in a winged chariot kind of an image. Then there's also the image of, a par of the soul from ancient Egypt. And they thought the soul had parts, multiple parts, but one of them was called the Ba. And the Ba was a head with wings on it. And so whether we're talking about the soul from ancient Egypt or the image of God from ancient uh, Persia, you've got this image that looks a lot like what Ransom has encountered when he sees the carvings that are representing the Oyarsa. All right, he comes across another carving um, of similar winged figures, but they're all laid out inside these circles. And it's like, a, you know, a pattern that's laid out, like a map. 
And Ransom recognizes that it's a map of the solar system. And these winged figures are inside of these circles are the Oyarsas of each planet. So the Oyarsa of Mars and of Earth and so forth. Um, but the one that represents Earth has been chipped away. Like somebody chipped away the carving of the Oyarsa. And I don't know about you, but that reminds me of these... In ancient Egypt, they had these cartouche symbols, and they were hieroglyphs that was the name of the pharaoh. And if for any reason the pharaoh was unpopular or they wanted to erase the history of the pharaoh or curse the soul of the pharaoh, they would chip away the cartouches. This happened to the pharaoh Akhenaten, as an example, where they would chip his face off of the the, um, uh, statues and they would chip his cartouche, his name, off of all the monuments. And this is exactly what we see with the Oyarsa of Earth having been chipped away. And this map is is the kind of final evidence or proof for Ransom that he is in fact on Mars, that Malachandra is in fact Mars, because he can see it all laid out. And he just kind of roams around um, Meldalorn, waiting to be summoned by Oyarsa, looking at all the monuments. Um, the first night com- comes and goes. I mean, he, he falls asleep. Um, and then he's awakened by a voice, and he can't see where the voice is coming from, so he knows that it must be an Eldil. And he, so he follows it, it brings him to Oyarsa, and as he uh, approaches the seat of Oyarsa, he's like, he's like acting, he's following his, his instincts, basically, and he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. And it says this in the book, it says, he could never remember afterwards whether an Eldil voice had told him to do so, or whether it was an intuition of his own. Right, so you, it's like, you can imagine if you were going to meet the King of England for the first time or something, and you don't know what the, uh, you know, what you're, how are you supposed to bow, what are you supposed to say, what are the rules for inter- inter- interacting with this high, you know, high office. Um, and so I think that the description of Eldil as spirits, but also as this disembodied voice you know, that Ransom hears, it's like the inner voice of conscience. It's like the Jiminy Cricket we, we brought up earlier. But also a force of intuition, right? Because, because Ransom is acting out a certain way, but doesn't realize that he's doing it, doesn't know why he's doing it. So it's like an instinct, and it makes me think of spirit as detached from the self somehow. Like these Eldil, these creatures that are floating around, are like his own spirit. And it reminds me of the, the genius of, um, um, what was it, uh, uh, Arthur Eddington that we, we read about, where, where he believed the spirit um, that was guiding him through his journey into the, into the cosmos, his psychedelic trip. Um, it was like the spirit kind of outside of him taking him along and showing him things. Or the or the the diamond of Socrates. Socrates describes something similar. And so the question that it brings to my mind is: Is the soul within the Chnau also Eldil? I think I think that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to tell us: that the thing within the human being that makes him alive, the thing in the Sorn and the Chrasa that makes them alive, is exactly the same thing that the Eldil are. So. Are all the Eldil an expression of God or Maleldil, as they call them in the book, including the sentient embodied beings like man and, and the Hrasa and, and the Sorns? 
All right, so I'll get back to the book where it goes like this. He perceived gradually that the place was full of Eldile. The lights which had been scattered over the island were now all congregated in this one spot. The creatures that had never seen man and whom man could not see were waiting for his trial to begin. And Ransom saw, if it could be called seeing, that Oyarsa was coming up. The merest whisper of light was traveling along the surface of the ground toward him. Oyarsa spoke, What are you so afraid of, Ransom of Thalkandra? Of you, Oyarsa, because you are unlike me and I cannot see you. Do not think we are utterly unlike. We are both copies of Maleldil. <laughs> man, oh man. We are both copies of Maleldil. Boy, man. So, so spirits and fleshly beings are equally made in God's image. That's what he's saying. They're equally embodiments of God. They're equally incarnations of Maleldil. So you've got this great... Spirit, the greatest of all the spirits. This is like a archangel type character for, for the mythology that, that we're learning about. And he speaks to a human being and says, don't be afraid of me. We're just alike. You and I are both copies of God. <laughs> I love it. You guys know I love that idea. All right, the Oyarsa continues. He, he says... I am not here altogether as you are, but do not try to understand this now. It is enough to know that I and my servants are even now in heaven. They were around you in the sky ship, no less than they are around you here. Then you knew of our journey before we left Thalkandra? No, Thalkandra is a world we do not know. No message comes from it. It was not always so. Once we knew the Oyarsa of our world, he was brighter and greater than I. He became bent. That was before any life came to your world, when he was not yet bound to Thalkandra, but free like us. It was in his mind to spoil other worlds besides his own. There was great war, and we drove him back out of the heavens and bound him in the air with his own world as Maleldil taught us. There, doubtless, he lives to this hour, and we know no more of that planet. It is silent. All right, so now we get to the explanation for out of the silent planet. What, it, what does that mean, that Earth is the silent planet? It means that all of the planets have a spirit, a guardian spirit, uh, that rule over it, an Oyarsa. And the Oyarsa of Earth used to be one of them, and... and and decided, for whatever reason, that it wanted to do harm to the other worlds. And so there was some heavenly war that that was fought with the, the Oyarsa of Earth until they bound him to Earth. And that solved this problem. But it also created this divide between the Earth and the rest of the planets, between the spirit that governs the Earth and the rest of the, of the world. So why is this interesting? So the Oyarsa of Earth was described as brighter and greater than I, than, than, than the, than the uh, Oyarsa of Mars. Okay, so if you have a, if you have a religious uh, interest, this is probably obvious to you, but 
Lucifer, the, arch, the, you know, the angel, the archangel Lucifer that, that we call the devil and Satan and so forth. Um, he's, he was called the morning star. He was associated with the planet Venus. He was called the bright one. right? And the Oyarsa of Mars says, he was brighter and greater than I. Lucifer was the bright one and the greatest of all the angels. The Oyarsa says he became bent. That means he became evil. It was in his mind to spoil other worlds besides his own. And this is a very familiar story to Zoroastrians who their, their myths of the devil, and you could very easily call that the devil um, in their mythology, um, he was um, exactly this, one of the spirits, um, uh, you know, one of the angels that um, wanted death and destruction, wanted to spoil and to destroy and so he was trapped on the earth by the other angels, kept there by God so that he cannot escape. And so in the Bible we hear that Lucifer has dominion over the earth, that the, that the earth belongs to Lucifer. In Zoroastrianism we, we have Ahriman, which is their, their Lucifer character, trapped on earth. And here you see both of these things wrapped up in this story. And there was great war, and we drove him back out of the heavens and bound him to this world. You see that in the Zoroastrian story. You also see that in ancient Greece, where the original gods, the Titans, are thrown into the center of the earth, into Tartarus, where they're locked there. They're locked into the center of the earth, and that's why they're struggling in their bonds, and so that's what's responsible for earthquakes and so forth. You know, this is, this is uh, how that myth plays out in the ancient Greek uh, world. So Lucifer ruling the earth, the Titans bound in Tartarus, Arim unlocked in earth. You get all of these sort of mythological stories wrapped up into this um, very alien version. All right, so now it's Ransom's turn to talk, and he warns the Oyarsa of Divine and Weston. He says that they're bent men who would kill everyone on Malacandra to get what they desire. And you, and you find out along the way that's actually gold. They found gold on Mars, and they're coming here to get, get the gold. So they're, you know, they're, they're sinners in that way. And the story goes like this. In the book it says, They do not know there is any Maleldil, but what is certain, Oyarsa, is that he means evil to your world. Our kind must not be allowed to come here again. If you can prevent it only by killing all three of us, I am content. And Oyarsa says, If you were my own people, I would kill them now, Ransom, and you soon, for they are bent beyond hope, and you, when you have grown a little braver, will be ready to go to Maleldil. But my authority is over my own world. It is a terrible thing to kill someone else's now. All right. So this is... Brilliant, as far as I'm concerned. But the Oyarsa says, I would kill all three of you if I could. I would kill the bad guys. I would even kill you, Ransom. And that's strange. And this is, this is what he says about it. He says, for they are bent beyond hope. That's why he would kill Weston and, and Divine. He says, but you, when you've you grown a little braver, will be ready to go to Maleldil. So that's why, if it were up to this Oyarsa, he would kill Ransom too. He would kill Ransom, not because he's evil like the others, but because as soon as he gets a little braver, he will be ready to go to Maleldil. He'd be ready to go to God 
What does that mean? And why is that a reason to kill him? And, and I'm struck with a, a statement from the book of Genesis when, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden and, and there's angels with flaming swords that are placed at the gate so that they can never return. And the book of Genesis tells us why that's being done. Why are they being kicked out? Why are they not being allowed to ever return to paradise? And the reason is because they had eaten from the tree of knowledge, so they knew the difference between good and evil. But not just that. It's because now that they have that knowledge, they will go back to the midst of the garden and eat from the tree of life. Not the tree of knowledge, but the tree of life. And then they will become as one of us. They will become as God and live forever. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says does not say that Adam and Eve were kicked out for disobeying God and for eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. They, in fact, they were kicked out because God was afraid that they would eat from the tree of life to become as a God and to live forever. And it's something like that that's, be, that's going on here. Where the Oyarsa says, I would kill you too, not because you're bent, but because as soon as you've grown braver, you'll be ready to go to Maleldil. And then lastly, he says, it's a terrible thing to kill someone else's chanao. So he can't kill Ransom and Divine and, and uh, Weston because they belong to Earth and the, and, and the angel of Earth. Not, not, they don't belong to him, so he can't kill them. And this implies that Chanao or, or spirit or whatever, um, incarnating sentient beings belongs to the Oyarsa of that planet. Perhaps is an extension of that Oyarsa itself, as seems to be true of the Eldile. So the idea here might be something mystical, something like all is one, something like the spirit of God flows from Maleldil to the Oyarsa, from the Oyarsa to the Eldil, from the Eldil to the to the Chanao, to the to the sentient beings, and it's all one flowing process. All of it rolls back up to God. All of it belongs to God. All is one in a very mystical sort of way. All right, so Ransom's conversation with Oyarsa was interrupted um, by a bunch of Sorns who kind of come marching in, and they're carrying two dead bodies with them. But they also have Weston and Divine all tied up. So they just kind of barge in to the king, to the Oyarsa, who's having this conversation with Ransom. And the Oyarsa asks um, Weston and Divine why they killed his Khnau. But they refused to answer because they couldn't see where the voice was coming from and they thought there was some kind of trick being played on them. That they were trying to be intimidated by um, you know, by these aliens. Um they're not willing to accept there's anything spiritual going on. They think they're they're being manipulated. And this reminds me, of course, of um, both the story of Adam in the garden, but also the story of Cain after he kills his brother Abel, where they both refuse to answer to the voice of God. If you remember, Adam's hiding from God because he's naked, right? And Weston and Divine, instead of, um, they try to threaten the Oyarsa and the and the uh, aliens, and they try to offer them beads and trinkets to kind of get out of it. And you get this very obvious parallel with European contact with Native Americans. Um, there's definitely a connection between the um, 
Hrasa and the Native Americans, a very primitive type, type of um, culture that, that, that they're described as having. And so you see something, something strange in this parallel here to the first European contact with, uh, with America. Um, but Weston and Divine, because they won't answer the Oyarsa's questions or even acknowledge its presence, they're basically led away and the crowd starts to sing a funeral song for these two dead Sorns that were killed. And the prayer itself is interesting. I'm just going to read to you the song that they're singing over the dead bodies. And it goes like this. Let it hence dissolve and be no body. Drop it gently as a stone is loosed over a pool. Let it go down, sink, fall away. Once below the surface, there are no divisions. All one and all unwounded is that element. Let it go down. The chnau rises from it. This is the second life, the other beginning. Open, O colored world, without weight, without shore. As the song ended, Oyarsa said, Let us scatter the movements which were their bodies. So will Maleldil scatter all worlds. Ransom closed his eyes to protect him from a blinding light and felt something like a very strong wind blowing in his face. Then all was calm again, and the three beers holding the corpses were empty. All right, so the prayer is sung, and the bodies kind of disintegrate, and they're gone. And Ransom witnesses all of this. And let me tell you what, what I think this all means, or the significance of this. So he says, let it hence dissolve and be no body. Drop it gently as a stone is loosed over a pool. So there's something like the soul leaving the body. Rather than going up to heaven like we generally would think from a Christian perspective, it sinks down. And this is something more like, like the conscious becoming unconscious. Jung describes it as sinking down within himself. So the spirit goes into the unconscious place, which is the source of the spirit. It goes back to its source. And once it gets, once it's sinking, right, it says, below the surface, below the surface of consciousness, there are no divisions, all one, right? So that's where the, the opposition of the world, the idea that our existence is made up of many things, falls back into a simpler, more true picture of, all, of everything being one. Right? This is that mystical oneness. All is one, one with the universe, that kind of thing. He says, all one and unwounded. So unwounded means unseparated. There's no division. Everything's together. That wound, that original wound of original sin that where, where consciousness was first ripped from the unconscious source that we're, we, I would call God. That's the wound. That's the original sin. He's saying that it's unwounded. When you go below the surface, you're going back to that unconscious wholeness. And he says, let it go down. The chanau rises from it. right? The soul, the spirit, consciousness, rises from the unconscious, rises from that, that, that source. He says, this is the second life, the other beginning. So you have some idea of maybe a reincarnation or, 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 or a life after death, an existence beyond, right? And it says, open, O colored world, without weight, without shore. And if you've ever had a psychedelic experience or near-death experience, that's something that might resonate with you. Open, O colored world. That's what, that's what 
the psychedelic vision is like, a world of geometric fractal colors and brilliance, without weight, without shore. It's like, you know, it's spiritual, it's non-physical, it's something like that. It has no boundaries, no shore. And that's how the song ends. And the bodies are mysteriously gone, you know, like, like Jesus' body mysteriously gone from the crypt. Back to be with God, back to be with Meleldil. At this point, Weston and Divine get brought back out with, with uh, Ransom in front of the Oyarsa. And it goes like this. To you it is nothing whether a creature is Chnau or not. I did not know that the Bent One had done so much in your world. If you were mine, I'd unbody you even now. So the Oyarsa is very threatening to Weston and Divine. Um, and he's talking about how the Bent One, so this is the Oyarsa that was erased, the Oyarsa that belongs to the Earth, has done so much damage to the world that somebody like Weston and Divine could have just killed the the Sorns, killed the Chnau of Mars without any second thought, without any notion of what they were what they were doing or the value there. And he said, if it were up to me, I'd unbody you even now. But he doesn't. He allows them to return to Earth, along with Ransom, giving them Eldile assistance and provisions for the trip. They have a traumatic landing after running out of oxygen on their descent, and Random is, Ra Ransom is rescued. He remains ill and unconscious for a time at the end of the book. He's struggling with whether his Malachandrian adventure was a fever dream or a reality. You know, was he drugged and this was all a dream? He has no idea. He just woke up and found, finds himself back on Earth disoriented, right? And this is how the book ends, leaving the reader wondering, was it real? But there is a postscript, and it leaves a tantalizing clue, not unlike the John Carter of Mars story, by the way. In this case, it gives us a note here that there are these ancient Latin manuscripts, and in them can be found an obscure word with mysterious meaning scholars argue over, Oyarsis, which seems to have meant something like the guardian spirits of the heavenly spheres. And that brings me to my conclusion. The story opens as all good fairy tales do, when the hero crosses the border from one world into another. By this I do not mean when the earthling ransom arrives on Mars, but rather when he drank the spiked draft and fell into unconsciousness. You see, it is the unconscious that we mean when we say the other world or underworld. The unconscious realm is the realm of spirits, of the gods. It is the place we can go, but do not know the way. Shrouded in darkness, perfectly unknown, full of promise and danger and magic. Yes, this is the place of fairy tales and myths, but it is a real place, and closer to you than you dare imagine. It is within each of us. The archetypal psyche, as Jung would say, filled with archetypal spirits. It is the place where God and man meet, and in this tale, that place is Malacandra. And its spirit inhabitants? 
They are the Sorns of the Hrasa, Aldile and Oyarsa and Maleldil. Is it a stretch to define the aliens of Malakandra as archetypes? Could be, but let's see. An archetype is something like a pattern of being, a motivational force that lives to varying degrees in all of us. It is archetypal because we find it as a part of our own self. It is relatable, but abstract. Familiar, but also alien. It is unquestionably in us, and yet not us. Take, for example, the Hrasa. They have a certain characteristic personality. As a species, they are noble, but primitive. The modern Western notion of the noble savage is an apt analogy. They live close to nature, in harmony with it. They commune with the spiritual powers that surround them, and they never question their purpose or place. They live naturally by instinct, and so morality for them is as a binding a law as gravity. And now that we've described the Harasa personality, we can ask the question, do I recognize this type? Is there a bit of Hrasa in me? Who do I know that exemplifies that Hrasa personality? Mystics, hippies, survivalists, animists, and artists? I'm talking to you. What of the Sorns? The Sorn personality is that of the enlightened being. They know the secrets of nature and the spirit world. They understand much that others do not. They are wise and yet humble. They know the limits of their knowledge and respectfully defer the rest to God or Maleldil. I can't help but see the guru, healer, sage, and Buddha represented here. Even the Socratic philosopher springs to mind. Wise, but also aware that its wisdom is nothing to the vast mystery of being. Do you have the Sorn personality within you? Do you know someone who does? It is exactly this, you see, which makes these archetypal. And in the story, they live and exist autonomously, just as Jung described the archetypes of the psyche. So what do we learn from these archetypes? If they exist in the unconscious realm of spirit and presumably have insight into the deeper realms of existence, what knowledge can be gleaned from them? Well, what did the Harasa, Sorns, Eldile, and Oyarsa teach our earthling hero? They taught him that Hnau, or sentience, is sacred, and that it belongs as much to physical beings as to spiritual ones. They taught him that there is only one God, Maleldil, whose will is transmitted through a hierarchy of beings. From the greatest of spirits, the Oyarsas, who govern each of the heavenly bodies, to the Aldile, or common spirits, who interact with the world and their inhabitants, all the way down to the Hnau, or physically embodied spirits, that we call sentient life. They are all extensions of Maleldil himself, God itself in various manifest forms. 
the Oyarsa of Malacandra said exactly this when he told Ransom that they are both copies of Maleldil. So, in C.S. Lewis's fashion, he's presented the spiritual reality of human beings and our religious intuitions shrouded in the guise of science fiction. Is it less objectionable this way to our modern scientific sensibilities? You tell me. Does the alien backdrop allow you to suspend disbelief? Does it make the existence of spirits and encounters with God compelling? I mean, in the context of the story, of course. It certainly seems so. So you see, even a skeptic, even an atheist, can in this way explore what this could mean, caveated by the obligatory, if it were real. And what if it were real? What would it mean for us if there was a deity on high from which we and all other beings derive our existence? What would it mean if we were indeed copies of God, carrying within us a life force which is identical to God? Luckily for us, C.S. Lewis does not make us guess. Instead, he lays it out for us, cloaked in an alien prayer. As the Harasa prayed for their dead, and their bodies were recycled back into the cosmic soup, they sang, Below the surface there are no divisions. All is one. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>